Dr. Yosef Sokol is a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Turo College. He also oversees multiple clinical studies. Dr. Sokol and a research team have spent, I believe, years on a breakthrough study about marriage trends in the Frum community. Yosef, Dr. Sokol, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is truly a pleasure. Same here. We're going to get into a lot of the details of your study. Two points jumped out at me about your research specifically. Number one, the vast majority, 96% of Haredi girls, according to your data, eventually get married. Now, many, it's in their 30s. That's a problem, but they do eventually get married. Number two, uh, there are, according to your data, roughly the same number of boys and girls in the dating pool, specifically talking about the Haredi community right now, the Yeshiva Orthodox community. Uh, is that accurate? And if so, doesn't that challenge a lot of our perception? Well, that's a lot. So let me yeah. start with the and, and yes, yeah, and feel free to take it slow. <laughs> Load it sure, quick. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so starting with that, uh, the vast majority eventually are getting married. That does seem to be correct, which is really Baruch Hashem that people are based on this data that we have. Both men and women are eventually getting married, and as you noted, that it's happening way later than many people want. And I want to kind of reiterate this, and I'm going to probably reiterate this a few times. I'm not trying to say that we don't have a crisis. Yeah. We do. Just look around. People are in tremendous sorrow, tremendous pain. It's more that the data seems to show that people are getting married, and therefore the crisis is that people are having tremendous trouble getting married, and it's taking way longer than they would like. That does seem to go against a little bit of what people have thought is the problem. People had, uh, which is actually kind of what sparked why I did this research. I'd been reading a lot of people talking about how um, 10 or even 20% of, of from girls and yeshiva orthodox in our community are not never going to get married. And I remember seeing actually right before I started this, somebody say that over once a girl reaches the age of 25, she's very unlikely to ever get married after that. She's not already married. And th that struck me as being something that if it's true, then yes, obviously we need to immediately do anything we can to fix that. But the reasons that people gave that they thought that didn't totally convince me that um, whether it was based on a few yeshivas in Lakewood, that that one thing that I remember, or it was based on numbers that they assumed about when were people getting married and the age gap between men and women. It seemed to me that if it's true, we really need to deal with this right away, but I didn't know if that was correct. And um, Baruch Hashem, I've been able to get a, a, um, some research skills. I'm an, I have a PhD and I run different studies. Yeah, a lot of research skills. I understand you're being any of it that can shed light on this, any of that helps us understand what to do better, I need to do that. That's... So I looked around and I found Baruch Hashem, I was able to find a wonderful team of people to work with, Dr. Yitzhak Schechter, Dr. Naomi Rosenbach. Um, Baruch Hashem, I was able to work with a group, a, a group that Dr. Schechter has called ARC, Applied Research and Community Collaboration, which tries to do research in our community to work with the community to do that. And through a lot of help and hundreds of hundreds of hours, we all put into this, probably th really thousands and thousands of hours. We ended up with this thing that while there is definitely a problem, as everybody could see, but something that may present a new ways for our community to be thinking about this. And obviously, one study isn't the end. And we need more studies to kind of make sure that this is right and continue to, a lot of questions are unanswered. But this is, I think, a good a first step that Baruch Hashem, most people do get married. And it's not that there's so many, so many, so many more girls getting married than boys. Yeah. And as you said, to clarify again, uh, you're not saying there is no crisis in the sense you're redefining the crisis, in the sense you're redirecting 
how we should approach the crisis because it's a very different crisis. If, if there is a boy out there somewhere and the girl has to find him sooner, that's very different than there aren't enough boys to match all the girls. So be very clear about that. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if people are getting married, even when they're, I mean, unfortunately, sometimes even in their 30s and maybe even 40s, that doesn't mean there is a person that they are eventually going to marry. If we could figure out a better way to get them married to that person 20 years earlier, that would be a tremendous thing to do for our community. Right. That's a solution that only makes sense if they are eventually going to get married. Right. Now, to your knowledge, somebody for them, like shift the conversation. And the flip side of it is, if, Sorry, what was that, if, the, if the flip side of it is, if people are saying the solution is uh, for boys to start dating younger, and we'll get to the age gap more in a moment, that theory, um, you're saying that won't really solve the problem if your data is correct. Right. I mean, what theoretically that might do is artificially increase the numbers of boys in the da- uh, in the dating pool, but that's not the fundamental issue. There's not enough boys. There seem to be enough. It's the issue that these boys and these girls, although they exist in our community, are not getting married to each other. Right. And just to clarify- yeah, I'm happy to go into exactly. Sorry, what was that? Yeah, we will. Now to clarify one other point. Um, as far as you're aware, is this the first time this sort of uh, study has been done? on this issue, like a real clinical study? As far as I know, I, I wish there were more. I wish this wasn't the first. <laughs> that, it would be much happier that way. But the closest we have is this Pew review that came out, which in 2013, and then or again, they had another one in 2020 that it was but way too small, only had like 500 Orthodox people in it. But the numbers did match pretty closely to what I found, but it was way too small to really say anything particular. This is, as far as I know, the first and definitely the largest and specific study to look at this area. Okay, and let's focus on the the age gap theory uh, for a moment, as it's called, and how your research sort of challenges that. And in an, I'll have you describe it if you can. In, in a nutshell, uh, the idea is that in the Haredi world, uh, boys tend to date girls and marry girls that are younger than them. So let's say a 23-year-old boy, not uncommon to marry a 20 or 21-year-old girl, uh, maybe a 19-year-old girl, 24 and 22, et cetera. Not always the case, but that's the trend. And the idea is there's a population increase. So every year, presumably, there are more children born. So that means there are not as many 23-year-old boys in the dating pool as there are 20- or 21-year-old girls. Uh, can you describe that? And why uh, your research basically is saying that that's not correct. And then the question a lot of us have is, how could that not be correct? Yeah, that's a great question. So just that what I, the age gap hypothesis that we're assuming that because there's a community growth of approximately what we say is 5% a year. These people talk about this. And then there's a, what people say is a four-year age gap. If you combine those two in pieces of information, it makes sense that there should be more uh, girls entering the dating pool and getting married every uh, available to get married than boys, which would create a problem. And yeah, I did not find that so much in that people did seem to be getting married. And boys and girls are approximately the same level. So I'm to do the study if it's so obvious. And I came up with a bunch of possibilities. One is that I hypothesize that there's a smaller marriage age gap than people were thinking. So girls start at 19 and boys at 23 approximately. But maybe it's taking girls longer to get married than boys. And maybe overall, the actual marriage age gap is smaller. And when I looked at the data, I have I don't know, 5,000 people about me approximately that I have that data about spouses and the age gap. And the answer for, for people who achieve orthodox in our community, it was only about two, uh, two, two years difference. 
2.2 to be exact, but that's less than four. So that already cuts that whole model in half. Right. It, it just because we're dividing one of those variables by two. And then as for the other, the remainder of it, we all, people who know this area know that if you look at the hospitals, and this is across all the developed countries, more boys are born each year than girls. Just as how, that's how Hashem designed us. Like we have uh, about 5% more boys born. And maybe it's because, I mean, boys are more likely to die from, from different things. But whatever, I don't know Hashem's reason, but this is Lamaisa how it works. The more boys are born than girls. So between, that's another 5%. And then maybe the rest has to do with maybe there's um, people entering the system or leaving people marrying people outside the system. I don't know the exact how it all kind of works, but it ends up being between the, the differences that, that people are saying it's four, four years and it's only two, plus more boys being uh, born. Uh, that seems to be enough that most of that issue apparently is not affecting and preventing girls from getting married. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, I understand. I mean, uh, definitely, is, you know, something which is puzzling. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure if the data, like I said, if the data is correct, then I guess we have to go in that yeah. kind of direction. Then, the, you know, yeah. the other question is the reliability of the data, which we're going to get to. Uh, do you have backing uh, support from Rabbanim? Sure. That's a very important question, because without that, that's that's what our community, the Ineida, our community, how our community should think about things through those eyes. And Baruch Hashem, throughout this, I have had, I mean, I was in, I was in Tamima, and then I was in Brooklyn, where I became very close to Valley Budni, and then after that, I've been in yeshivas of Shon I've been, throughout my life, I've been in yeshivas, yeshivas. And throughout that time, all the, whenever I've been thinking about issues in our community, I would talk to my yeshivas, my rabbanim, and this project is, which is one of many that I would talk about and think about before I began this, whether I should do it or not, what I was doing exactly as far as how to get this information, what the information means, what the results mean, what are the next steps, all of these things are things I've talked to Rabbanim, Rosh Hashivas about, and Baruch Hashem, I've had tremendous support along the way. If I didn't think that my Rosh Hashivas and my Rabbanim thought that this was a valuable thing to do, I don't know if I would have done it, because what's the point of doing something that won't have an impact? It's because of Rabbanim, Rosh Hashivas, think that this is valuable, that's why I think it can have an impact in our community, which is what this is all about. Right. Obviously, very, very important. So let's get into your actual methodology, your actual data collection. Um, can you describe you know, how you ensured, obviously, that the data is reliable? And specifically, I think one thing that people will be wondering is you're based. it's based on self-identification. In other words, you had these two groups people identify as, uh, I guess, modern Orthodox versus Yeshiva Orthodox. Yeshiva Orthodox is the group that we're mostly focused on here. And, you know, where the age gap and the shit crisis discussion it obviously gets a lot of focus. And people are going to wonder, well, how do you know, you know, just because they're, they identify as Yeshiva Orthodox, which Yeshiva, you know, there are Yeshivas, there's a big spectrum of Yeshivas that they, you know, people who are maybe in the more call it modern Orthodox world, may identify as Yeshiva Orthodox? That's an interesting question. So I struggled with this, figuring out what the best way to have people identify as something. And I went through different options. I was thinking, at one point I was thinking, making a list of like things like, do you send your kids to a, to a co-ed school or not a co-ed or a single gender school? Do you, um, do you wear your tzitzis out? I had a whole long list of possibilities, but then I took that whole thing and threw it away because it was too, it didn't work. It's very hard. Now, someday I will do this, but it's very hard to come up with an objective criteria to tell people what group they're in. And I think that as of now, the best way we had is by asking people what 
they identify, what group is closest to, they consider themselves part of. So I came up with a very simple basic list, including Hasidish, Chabad, non-Orthodox, Yeshiva Orthodox, non-Orthodox. Of course, I also ask people, are they Ashkenazic, are they Sephardi? I also I ask people like um that if they value or not. I ask people like enough information to get a sense of where which community they would kind of be in. Both also I ask them when they were what they were raised in, what they are currently. And through all that information, if people said that they instead of being Chabad, Hasidish, non-Orthodox, non-Orthodox, if they pick Yeshiva Orthodox, both that they were raised in that and that they still are in that, or somebody identified them that way, that's what I consider to be at least the closest I could get to this. And I just also want to note that I also struggle with what name to use. I thought about should I use Yeshivish? Should I use Yeshivish Avelt? Should I use yeah. Black Hatter? Should I use D? Yeah. Yeah. And each of those have problems. Like just for example, I mean, personally, Haredi for me is an Israeli term. There's more about a society in Israel than a society in America. It doesn't, for me at least, it doesn't, I know a lot of people wouldn't really consider themselves Haredi, but are part of the yeshiva system. Um, yeshivish also, it's, I know if people like say that person's yeshivish, I'm not yeshivish, but they're part of the yeshiva system. Absolutely. It got a little confusing. And I thought that the simplest way to do it is just everybody's, sort of knows what I mean when I say yeshiva orthodox as but as opposed to if I would use like specific terms and divide it up in different complicated ways so I ended up using that and so far it's I haven't had anybody tell me that they had no idea and they could not they gave up filling out the survey because they didn't know where to put themselves it seems that people if people pick yeshiva orthodox or monolithodox they did seem to mean something and so, yeah, no, that's understandable how hard it is to find an objective criteria. How, did you consider, you know, what institutions they attended? So asking girls who are married, are they married to somebody who learned in BMG Lakewood or who learned in Brooklyn Yeshiva versus learning in Yeshiva University and engaging it based on literally what institutions they're connected with? I could have. And this is, again, I did consider that, like asking, like, what school you're sending your kids to? What school did you go to? But do you realize how complicated that would actually get and where you'd put the line? Like, yes, Yeshiva Orthodox, Yeshiva University is obviously not Orthodox, and BMG is obviously Yeshiva Orthodox, but the lines are blurry when you get down to the middle. And also, people sometimes learn many, both issues. I know people who were in BMG and Yeshiva, and Yeshiva University both. Where do I, what happens to them? I, yeah, again, there's a, I, I could like, have a whole three hour long conversation with all the different methods that I ended up not using. Yeah, and again, part of a team—not just me—we all work together to try to figure out what's the best way to. Yeah, do this. And a team very familiar, obviously, with the community. And look, every study—you you, you can always poke holes in yes. the objectivity and in in this kind of thing, the reliability. And that's why you know people like you said you want multiple, you want more studies. So I completely, yes, I, I completely understand that. But uh, yeah, at the same time, yeah, you know, I, I I completely understand your point. How you know, you, yeah, you literally... maybe another that would be great. Another study could—I would love for me to do another study that used more of these criteria like kind of saying that I think you are part of orthodox or whatever because X, Y, and Z and see if it gets the same results. That would be great. But yeah, and you asked me before about like my overall way I got this data and I could talk about that also for like an hour, but I'll give you like a 30 second version and then ask me if you want more specific details about any part of that. So 30 second version is again, went through many, many, many possibilities. And due to like, what ended up, one of the major things that ended up deciding this particular method is because it was, I was having a hard time getting like a, a list of people in the community from high schools or other places for whatever reason, politics or other issues. And it ended up being that I was gonna have to get this data directly from the people. 
So the big issue with getting data directly from people is something called um, respondent bias or sampling bias, where a particular type of person is more likely to give you information. That's a, the big issue. And so I came up with a whole series of, of me and my team, a whole series of ways to deal with that. One of them is we create a very, very, very simple survey that people can fill out about themselves and their families. So their siblings, their children. And what we ended up doing is like asking you, like, did they get married? How old they get married? Their gender, their um, their community they're currently in. And then we ended up not using the people there's the, what they wrote about themselves because maybe there's something unusual about them and just using what they wrote about their family. The, still, we have to make sure to reach as a large section of the community as possible. So we had a whole, like a slew of different ways of getting this out, the, including having like a, a email blasts for marketing people from Yeshiva, the Yeshiva Rural News and, um, and Five Towns Jewish Journal both put it out, had, a, had an article that they had a link to this. Um, we had the RCA sent it out to all their shuls, all the rabbinim sent it out to us, asked to send it out to the congregations. But actually, in my opinion, the way that worked the best was because when I actually looked at the numbers, is people who started filling it out, we asked every person, please send it to other people. And then if they gave an email address, we emailed them and asked them again. And people sent it to other people and it became sort of viral on like WhatsApp groups. People kept inside, oh, I know a lot of seminary girls and a lot of yeshiva guys sent it to all their friends who then sent it to all of their friends, who then sent it to all of their friends. And that spread a lot through text messages, through WhatsApp, through WhatsApp. And that's why I think we ended up reaching a lot of people who don't even have internet access because they're more Haredi, or if they do, they don't really use it that much. So that was another way to kind of reach a lot of areas within that group. And even if one person doesn't have internet access, let's say some one of their siblings might, maybe they have a sister who's part of a seminary uh, WhatsApp group, and the sister filled it out for them. That was another way that we kind of reached people who we might, wouldn't have reached otherwise. Yeah, I was going to ask. There's an obvious problem with this. Because, yeah. yeah there's an obvious problem because if we have family members fill it out, then we have the issue of what if two people in the same family filled it out? Right. How do we know we're not double counting people? So I, uh, my, so what we ended up doing is we included a list of questions that while we can't identify who the person is because we wanted to keep it anonymous, we're able to identify the part of the same family or not including the last two digits of the phone number of the family when they grew up, their zip code when growing up, number of siblings, genders, married or not, agent marriage. Then I use all of these things to identify duplicates in a single family and wow. removed duplicates. So between that plus removing everybody outside of North America, we unfortunately didn't have enough information about Sfardim, Chabad, Hasidim to talk about them specifically. So I also removed those, uh, those data points, which is why... I went from information about over 15,000 people down to about 9,000 people, 9, which is what we only really talk about in 9,000 people when I'm talking about this. That's because a lot of work went into cleaning this and making sure that it's a representative of the community and non-biased as possible. Now, but is there a concern that uh, even though you're saying it reached people who don't have access to digital devices or internet or don't have as much access, have limited access, because there's an email sent, because somebody shared it with their family, their friend, is there a concern that there's a predominance of people in the center, people who are going on Yeshiva World, or you mentioned the RCA. There's a lot of channels here that are kind of geared toward people who are more likely to be tech technology uh, savvy or, or aware or involved, as opposed to, yeah, even if it happens to be that some of the more Haredim who, who don't, you know, don't spend that kind of time on internet or, or are just not going, maybe some of them got it, but not nearly the same level of predominance. Is there a way to ensure that? So again, 
Great question. It's hard for me to like, am I going to say a thousand percent sure that I'm certain that I reached every part of the community the same? Not really. And based on where people were that filled it out, like well, the, 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 the locations of the people, based on the, the, the levels of that are the areas that I know people got it from because I know people reached out to me. Also based on that, I have found information about people, let's say in, in BMG or Lakewood, other people have collected it and my data matches those almost perfectly. I'm pretty confident that this reached enough people in all these communities to be pretty representative. And just to add, even if there's some slight differences between different segments of Lakewood itself, let's say, it's, on, it's all part of one shidduch system. In the yeshiva, so long as I'm reaching major aspects of the yeshiva orthodox world, it seems unlikely that it should be such a difference that let's say people who are don't let's say have WhatsApp groups are are much less likely to get married than people who do have. Like we're talking about the community in a way that seems unlikely that right. small pieces should make a big difference in this question. Itself. Yeah, that's a good point. You addressed this already, but just to follow, uh, you know, people have come up with the idea of just taking lists from seminaries, lists from high schools from 20, 25 years ago, and then just matching up. Okay, where are they now? Why was that not an option? It was an option. That was the first method I pursued, actually. That was like, for me, it was like, uh, I was really going to get like a random, get a full list of people from a single week. This is my first method is get a full list of people from a certain year, let's say 20 years out, get a random sampling of those people, uh, get information about those people and get it. The problem I hit is that it might maybe work for seminaries, but it was extremely difficult to get seminaries or high schools enough on board. It needs, but maybe now it's actually more likely because the community is more open to this, but also getting yeshivas was even more difficult. And because they, they, they keep, there's kind of a less of a keeping track of people after leaving yeshiva. And I, I knew already that there's no way I could just look at girls and not boys. The whole question is, is there a difference between boys and girls? So just looking at girls without boys is just kind of not really right. a good method. I was planning on looking at everybody and it got so difficult that I ended up moving to this method. But if somebody's able to do that call out the vote, I fully support that. I'd love to be, that's something that would be wonderful to do. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay. Again, multiple studies. I'm not saying anyone... Right. No, exactly. Good answer. Uh, now, let's talk about which communities specifically are represented. And I know you asked people where they grew up, not where they currently are. I assume you did that because families, they're discussing family members. So, you know, everyone's in a different spot right now. You showed me the breakdown. It's about 2,900 respondents from Brooklyn, about 1,500 from the Muncie area. Uh, and again, this is where they grew up, about seven, eight, 900, I think, from the five towns plus Farakaway. You may have about 300 in Teaneck, uh, about 300 in Lakewood. Again, that Lakewood you know, people have to realize Lakewood exploded in the last 12 or 15 years. So people who grew up in Lakewood 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that was a much smaller number. Th- those people grew up in Brooklyn. People are in Lakewood now grew up in the New York area for the most part, I would think. You know, that's my understanding. 180 in New York City. So I think it generally represents, people would argue, you know, these are the, you targeted the areas um, where the people that we are looking at and are trying to understand, you know, the, the, it, it, you pretty much hit those targets. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that I got people from all over America. There are people from Los Angeles to Miami to Cleveland True. to Chicago, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, all over. Really, wherever there are like a from community in America, a larger than a few hundred people, somebody was filling this out, which is for me was very, very good, like re- reinforced the idea that this is getting a sense of our community as a whole, not just any specific area in America. Right. And now let's get to the actual, you know, Shiloh crisis. Um, number one, uh, as you said, th- there's way too many girls, according to your data. If your data is accurate, uh, most girls are getting married, the vast majority, by age 40. 
So there's a there's a boy out there presumably somewhere. Yet at the same time, I think it's 92% of girls married by age 30. So that's 8%. That's a very large number only getting bigger who are not married by age 30. I assume you would call that a crisis. I'd like to know. Number two, girls get married 25, 26, 27, 28. They could have gotten married at age 22 or 23. So do you agree? I know you said this earlier. Let's reiterate. Yes, there's a crisis. But the crisis, it seems, is that they're getting married too late. And if so, what do you think are the solutions? What What, what is the right approach? It's hard to say for certain anything about what a crisis is. I think there's tremendous pain out there. So many people who are really want to be married and are not married. And I have, I, I know so many people are, this is why I was doing this. So I, without a question, I don't want this to be interpreted as saying this is not a crisis. That's not where this should go. And this suggests, suggests this study and hopefully other studies following it suggests another area for our community to be focusing. Because if it's true, which is pretty common, then people are getting married. So we need to figure out just how to help them get married earlier. That And so that shifts. To get to that, then, I needed this to be my kind of my role as a researcher, which I have spent a lot of time, I don't know, a lot of publications. I spent a lot of time on data. I know this is I have a PhD. These are things I, I know how to do. And after the data is analyzed. So yes, I can talk about the data and say how confident am I in, in the exact numbers and why. But then what we should do about that, it's always is a little harder because I'm a member, I mean, I'm also a psychologist, clinical psychologist. I'm a member of our community. So I have a lot of thoughts and intuitions and a little bit is suggested by the data itself. But a lot of this is everybody has good ideas. It's not, I wouldn't say that I am like should be necessarily taken any more seriously than anybody who really knows and cares about our community once they take into account that there are people out eventually people are getting seem to be getting married. And the question is, how do we get to married earlier? Now, with those caveats, I do have ideas, just like probably everybody else. And some of them right. are suggested by data. So some things I'll start with one that's kind of really a little bit actually in the data. Um, if you zoom in on the data, you'll see that while the vast majority are getting married, until the age of about 30, 32, there are more girls than boys getting married at each age year. But after that, it flips and a one to two percent more uh, boys than girls. If you're specifically looking at people who are raised and currently yeshiva orthodox, meaning that they're in our system, they stayed in our system. But why is that? And if I spent a whole bunch of different ways of looking at the data to figure that out. And one thing that popped out at me is that Unfortunately, for whatever reason, when people are 30 years old and not married in our community, they're not as likely to stay in our community. They are, maybe they leave to be minor Orthodox, they Hasidish, Chabad, not Orthodox, right. not Orthodox entirely. And for whatever reason, again, this seems to happen more to boys than girls. So really almost twice as many boys leave our system than girls when they are single at the age of 30. So why is this? I can guess. Everybody else can guess too. It's very hard. It's hard. If you're, if you, especially if you leave yeshiva, you're not married. If people have a hard time staying connected, being identifying, and having a community, a home in our community. Right. And to me, at least, that suggests one way we could think about this is just from the data itself. Maybe our community, the people are already doing this in Lakewood, like figuring out people who leave yeshiva, how to stay, connect them, and stay involved. If we did more of that, especially people who are single, and figured out ways to keep them connected, the boys. Over time, then every boy we keep in our community is another boy for a girl to be able to meet Hashem and date and get married to. That's one for me, like data driven. But there's other possibilities. 
for example, if, I mean, just since these people are already in our system, but they're having trouble getting married, you have to think about what are they looking for in, in dating? Um, what are they, uh, what is their dating style? Are they, are they able to build connections? Are they able to uh, look, look while dating for what they should be looking for to get married and have a good marriage? And I'm not, this is no tremendous chiddish or original idea, but if we did a better job at teaching people before they began dating what they should be looking for, this obviously should be based on maybe with also some data about like what predicts good marriages. I'm happy that like, psychologists do know a little bit about like specifically what kind of might predict a good marriage or not, like developing, getting married. But if we were able to help people ahead of time, then while they're dating, we have certified dating coaches that are that are like a community trains people based on again Rabbanim's uh, idea of what this should work, and maybe with consultation with people who are researchers, what could work to help people date and get married and also have good marriages. Obviously, we're not stopping by getting married. We want people to have shalom bias, and we don't want to. That's what the long term is what we're looking for. So these type of things and like a lot of things along these way how to encourage people to get married would be important. And I'm just going to reiterate, there's something that I, a lot of people say, my uncle always says this, there's a, he's a scientist and he talks about the difference between is and what. Science can tell us what is. It can say, this is what's going on. Science can never say what, what, what should be going on. So I may be able to say, this is the number of people getting married. I even might be able to say, if I studied it, if you do X, Y, or Z, more girls will get married. Just to give an example, let's say I said that all mothers of boys should consult with the boy ahead of time and go based on what the boy wants in, in vetting the, the resumes. Theoretically, that may cause more people to get married. But should we do that? I can't say. That's an what question. That needs to be Ashkafa of Agadolim, of Rabbanim, to say what should happen, what we should do as a community. The best scientists can do is say, this is what's going on. This is my, what might happen if you do something. But that never says this is the solution that we should do. That is in the hands of people. But anyway, that is people who should be right. making that decision. Right. And one last question. You know, how do you respond? If somebody says to you, look, I'm looking around. I know people. I know families. Like you said, there's a lot of suffering. I, just, I see more 30-year-old girls unmarried than 30-year-old boys. I just, I'm looking. My perception is that there's more unmarried girls than boys. You know, so what do, you, what do you say to that? How do yeah. you, I think it's a common thought. 100%. Yeah, it's, it was my thought too. It's everything. I mean, we look around. This is this is what we see, and uh, there's a, a few parts to this answer. Uh, uh, excuse me if it takes a minute because this is something I thought about a lot. I'm sure it's a fundamental <laughs> question. So I'm going to start with something called uh, like a psychologist. I am a psychologist. We, we think about how people think and how people understand things and how people make sense of the world. One of the things that psychologists have discovered is something called an availability heuristic or an availability bias. The idea is that when we think about how common something is, we make that estimation based on how easily available examples are about them, rather than a true like uh, statistical analysis of the numbers. So for example, this is the standard example psychology textbooks use, is after there's a plane crash, if you ask people how common plane crashes are, people say, oh, they're very common. Right. But the reality is that only one happened in the past three years. But that example is very available in people's minds. And to give another example that's uh, sort of near and dear to my heart, um, unfortunately, every, it seems like every very often the secular media, like the New York Times, or whatever, publishes these hit articles about our community. And if you speak to people outside of our community, they'll say, oh, there's these a lot of negative things going on. When the reality is it's just because those are available in these people's minds because that's what they're hearing. 
then 99.9% .9 of our community is amazing and wonderful. But if a newspaper is published and focused on all the negative things, and that's what people hear, then that's what is in people's minds. And that's what they assume is very common. So back to our case, you know, in, if, if for whatever reason, I can talk about why this might be as a psychologist, a researcher, but from girls who are, yeshiva girls who are not married, it's extraordinarily difficult to them. And people notice that, and it's more available to them than the boys. Um, and maybe it's kind of like you think of it as like, this is, it's, it's, it's terrible. We want, every time we see it, we think immediately, how can I help? And because there's tremendous pain. Is that really that the girls are more in more pain than boys? I don't know. It's hard for me to say. When I've talked to actually single, this is one of the reasons I actually got into this to begin with. When I talk to single boys and people know, they say there's a ton of single boys out there too, but nobody talks about it. Nobody seems, they say that it feels like nobody cares about us, which is really terrible, actually, for our community. We need a, boys can be in pain just like girls can be in pain. Yeah. And if you look at my numbers, it looks like a lot of boys are not getting married too. Um, but since there's an increased focus on this, it could be there's like that availability thing becomes activated and people notice that more. But actually, if you think about it, and we all think about it, we do know single boys too, who grew up in our community or not married, most people. And if you actually think about it, and I actually did this myself when I was beginning this, I knew just as many of each. It just, I somehow it was more obvious to me that the girls and the boys, because that's what I was thinking. Of. So that's one. The next, that's called, that's an availability or something. Another part of this is that there is that actually over 30, remember most people are getting married, the vast majority, and before 30, but let's say about 90%, whatever it is at 30. But after that, there are somewhat a 2%, whatever it might be more uh, girls than boys who are not getting married. More, some more boys that are getting married. But as the numbers get smaller towards the end of the total amount, it ends up being there could be 50% more um, girls than boys unmarried who are over 32 or over 35, whatever it might be, who were both raised and currently she us. So the whole number is a few, or maybe 5%. But in that 5%, there could be more girls than boys because, as I said, it looks like the boys might be uh -huh. the, I was like, the result is that you do know of someone more. So it's not just availability. It's like they're actually over, if you think about over 30, there are Another point, and this is the last one, I, then I will stop after this. I can keep on going, but I'm going to do one more. There is a difference between the dating and the marriage. So I was talking before about the marriage gap, which is about two years like in our community of Yishim Orthodox, between the, the actual, on average, the amount of years apart. But there's also a dating population group. And the amount of years on average of people between people what people date. And since there is a population growth and there are um, and girls enter the dating pool earlier, there are a lot more girls than boys in the dating pool. Even though eventually they may date people at a bigger age gap, but for whatever reason, people end up marrying people or people closer to their age. So that as far as marriage goes, can get rid of the issue of that there aren't enough uh, um, boys for girls. But when you're in the dating, it looks like there are more. Uh, there are dating more people are there's more kind of more available plus there's the resume thing that boys get sent their resume first between those two things it really feels like boys are having an easier time dating the girls and girls are struggling having a hard time finding dates and are older combining all of those things yes it really does it makes us even more reinforces this feeling that there are so many more the girls are having such a harder time and there's so many more of them than boys um yeah keep on going on but i think that three yeah. is enough all right, we'll leave it there. Yosef, Dr. Yeah. Sokol, uh, I really appreciate everything you've done. I appreciate you taking the time. Fascinating work. You know, very obviously extremely valuable and critical work for our community. 
uh, and it's fast. You've given us a lot to think about. Excellent. Thank you. I just want to finish with one more yeah, point. Final thought. Yeah. That, yeah. Final thought is that this is just the beginning. We need so much more. Our community needs help in this area. And I think we need to think this through, maybe do more studies, maybe do more methods and see if they work or not. This should really, I see this only as a preliminary first step. Our community needs a lot more of help. This is a terrible issue. And I'm not saying that this, this issue isn't an issue. We need to help this issue. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Yosef Sokol, I failed to mention earlier, you're a Musmach of Yeshiva Beis Yosef in Brooklyn, licensed psychologist, assistant professor at Turo College. Thank you for joining us on the Vin News Podcast. Thank you so much for having me.